This morning, uh, we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 3, a message I call Unsearchable Riches. Unsearchable Riches. Let's all stand together at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And may God bless the reading of His Word today as my prayer. You may be seated. Whenever I approach this text, I almost feel like Moses being told to take off my shoes. I'm not going to do that, but uh, uh, we do kind of think about it. Uh, because of the incredible truth that is revealed in this passage, all of God's Word is precious to us. Uh, but there are some passages that are just packed with the incredible power of God and promises of God. And this is one of them, the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see, when it comes to the application and experience of God's blessings in our life, of His grace operating in your life and mine, God doesn't mete out His grace to us like a child's allowance. We get the unsearchable riches of Christ so that He gives to us without reservation all the riches of our Redeemer. Earlier this year we looked at this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Uh, exceeding riches of His grace. Now we return to that subject this morning uh, because Paul does. Maybe it's because he wants us to understand uh, just how incredible, how amazing it is that God didn't just save us, but He has lavished on us the exceeding riches of His grace through Jesus Christ. You know, one of the earliest financial lessons we learn is that you can't spend your money and keep it too. Or at least I think we, under, we, we learn that. Uh, when you spend it, you spend it on something you enjoy or maybe something that you buy. Nancy and I used to enjoy going to Walmart with all five kids of ours in tow. One of our favorite things to do was give them a dollar and tell them they can buy anything they want. <laughs> hey, it kept them occupied the whole time. We was buying groceries, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, you can't uh, keep your money and spend it too. And that's one thing when you have an allowance of 2 or $3. But of course it becomes something else if you're a multi-billionaire and you have difficulty even spending the interest on all the money that you have invested. You, see, you just can't keep up. Or I almost say you can. It's very difficult to keep up. But it can be done. No matter how much you make, you can spend more than you make. Uh, in the Old Testament, when they talked about wealth, they talk about Solomon, King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 27, the Bible says the king that Solomon made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. That doesn't mean he made it less valuable. It means he made it abundant. 
He made silver like stones and cedars like the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. It's talking about the incredible wealth of Solomon. And yet even that wealth could soon be gone, and in fact it was. All of that wealth attracted the attention of foreign powers immediately around Israel. When Solomon died, they attacked. His son had to buy off the attackers with mostly all of his father's treasures. The Bible would tell us that he went on to replace all the shields of gold and, uh, that once uh, uh, adorned the armies of Solomon with shields of brass. They kind of looked the same, but not nearly as valuable. You see, no matter how much you have, it can all go away. But then there are the riches of grace in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that riches? What is that incredible wealth? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is the riches, the wealth, the incredible grace that God lavishes on us because Christ lives in us as a believer. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 talks about the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. Aren't you glad this morning that God is rich in goodness? Aren't you glad this morning God is rich in mercy or forbearance? Aren't you glad that God is rich in long-suffering or patience, that He doesn't give up on God is rich. You despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. We are full recipients of these riches of God in Christ Jesus. We see we never have to worry about spending all of God's riches toward us uh, so that none remain. God has many, many, many children. And you all know how expensive kids are. Amen? Huh? I can't believe we didn't get a big amen on that one. We all know how expensive kids are, right? <laughs> but even though God has many, many children, uh, they're never going to spend His wealth. And we'll see how that plays out to us in our text this morning. Paul is going to summarize this entire section uh, with three compound words. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, in Greek the word is soon or seen. And uh, it means joined together, union, united. Uh, something that is a fellow something, something that is joined together, united, joint that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, there it is, of the same body, there it is again, and partakers of His promise, and there it is again, in Christ by the gospel. Three words, joint heir, uh, joint body, joint partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. I really wanted this morning to roll all three of those into one sermon, and I tried real hard, but I just couldn't do it. Well, I could have done it, uh, but I didn't think y'all wanted to stay to one o'clock, uh, or maybe two. Um, <clears throat> I'll do my best to get through this one in a timely manner, fellow heirs. One of the reasons why that that one is such a big deal is because one of the great issues in biblical interpretation. And one that many, many people across Christianity struggle with has to do with what is ours because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross or what is ours because of our works, our faithful service, our devotion to Christ, the things that we do. 
We could put it this way. What is ours because of what Christ has done for us? And, and what is ours because of what we do for Him? Now, the Bible talks about both. And it's important, even when we're talking about the latter, the things that we do for Christ, even those are done by His grace. We don't come up with that on our own. It is the operation of God's grace in us, of Christ living in us, of the Holy Spirit empowering us. Uh, without Him living in us and working through us, we could do nothing good or godly that pleased God. It's all by Him and by His power. We understand that. And yet the Bible does talk about what is ours because we are redeemed and that speaks of what Jesus Christ has done for us and that falls in that general category of what is ours because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It's what Jesus Christ accomplished for us by His death. And then what is ours by reward. And we're going to spend some time this morning talking about both sides of those equations under this general concept of what it means to be a fellow heir. I want you to notice right up front that in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible doesn't say that we would be joint heirs uh, of the same body, joint members of the body, and joint partakers of His promise in the church by baptism. There are a lot of people who try to make this passage say that, but it doesn't say that. All three of these things are clearly identified for us as things that are in Christ by the gospel. That is, these are things that happen to us because we are redeemed, because we're saved. If you want to look up the word joint heir in a legal dictionary, uh, I did, you will find it's given a very simple definition. It means share and share alike. <laughs> it means co-heirs. If it were co-owners, it would refer to something equally owned by both parties. In the case of heirs, it means all parties share equally in the estate. We have a couple of great passages that discuss this. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, if children, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Paul speaks to us of how we participate in Christ's sufferings by faith. He died for us. His death becomes our death. Baptism doesn't cause that. Baptism is a picture of it. His death is counted as our death. His burial is counted as our burial. His resurrection is counted as our resurrection. Therefore, His life, he says, is counted as our life. Again, baptism does not cause that. Baptism pictures it. That's why that we baptize by immersion. That's the only thing that pictures the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is ours because we are redeemed. If we are the children of God, if, then you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's a great passage. How can this happen? Hebrews chapter 9 gives us some important information. For this cause he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, even the most casual observer 
of the Bible can see very quickly that it is divided as a collection of books into an Old Testament and a New Testament. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us part of the reason why that is because Jesus Christ, when He came, fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament and ushered in a new one. So that all the promises and the blessings and the benefits that God has promised to His people are, as the Bible says, in Him, that's in Christ, yes, and in Him, amen. Now, how does that play out in our life practically? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that a testament, that is a will and testament, is of no force whatsoever until whoever it is that sign in the testament Leaving this last will and testament, it is not in force until the person who did that died. Now, God wrote out a testament. Let me ask you a question this morning. How long is God going to live? Forever. Thank you very much. Yes. That's why he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, fully man, fully God. Right of the book of Hebrews in this same chapter will tell us he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death so he could die. And that he, by the grace of God then, would taste death for every man. So that by the death of Jesus Christ then, God's testament to us is in full force for all of those who have received Christ as their Savior. The New Testament didn't stop there, though, because Christ not only died, but He lives. He rose again. And because Jesus lives then, we can be said to be joint heirs with Christ. Why is that important to us? Well, when a person dies and they leave their estate to their survivors, whatever it is, you know that the more survivors they have, the less each one of them is going to get, Right? I mean, if they have, one, they're, have an only child, they leave everything to that one person, then that one person gets it all. But what if they have 50 kids? Or, or, or even worse, they have no kids, and maybe, and it passes in to all of the other relatives that they have, and all of their kids, and everybody who is related to them as a share on the estate. Well, the more people that's in the estate, then the less anybody is going to get. Not so with Jesus Christ. You see, the great principle of being joint heirs with Christ means that, yes, Jesus Christ died, and He then is able to leave that testament of all the blessings, all the promises that God promised to us through His people. Yes, the New Testament is in full force. But every time somebody gets saved, it doesn't mean that our benefits go down. <laughs> because Jesus Christ lives in us, and we are in Christ. And because of that union, we are in Him, and Christ is in us. It doesn't matter how many millions of people are saved. We all get it all. You say, that's not possible. Well, not humanly speaking, but it is possible because Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again, and lives in every single one of us. Because you're in Christ, and I'm in Christ, then we all get it all, all that He has for us. On the night before Jesus died on the cross, He prayed a magnificent prayer. 
This prayer was carefully remembered and recorded by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 17. He said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now Jesus was praying in the presence of his apostles, but he looked down through time to see me and you and you and you and you and all everybody. All of those, he said, that would believe through the words of the apostle. And that's a number that only God himself knows. I pray then, verse 21, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed that prayer and he went out on Calvary and accomplished it. So that all those who believe in Jesus Christ then are one in him. And we all then live out in the world all of those blessings and fullnesses that are promised to us in God's grace. That means that none of us are left out. That means God's salvation is not like a Ponzi scheme where the first people who get in on it get all the good and everybody else gets all the work. No. The Jews in the Old Testament were brought into the fullness of God's blessing in Christ. We who are Gentiles in the New Testament, we too are brought into the fullness of God's blessings in Christ. The Jews don't get a double portion and we get something left, but we all are one in Jesus Christ. We are all heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Oh, that's good news for us today. Riches of His glory. That's true. It is also true that Jesus spoke a whole lot about rewards that are available to us because of our faithful service. And I want to reiterate that this morning, that Jesus Christ promised us, one of the things He promised us is the ability to serve God acceptably. That we can please God by faith, that we can serve Him. You understand that God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. God could have done everything He ever set out to do without any one of us ever having a part. But God gave us a job. God gave us a chance. God gave us a chance knowing that we were weak, knowing that we were frail, knowing that we would mess up. And yet God, in His grace, gives us the opportunity to serve Him. To serve Him by faith, by His grace, for His glory. And when we do, He promises us a well done. But not only that, but He promises us a reward. I don't have time this morning. I couldn't even begin to show you all the times that Jesus talked about His reward. I'll just give you a spattering. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Mark chapter 9 and verse 41. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in My name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, He shall not lose His reward. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And you shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Just a few passages. There are multitudes of, men, of, more, of others that Jesus spoke about rewards. 
I love Colossians chapter 3 where Paul gives us some inspired commentary. (laughs) He said in verse 23, whatever you do, whatever you do. I look around this building, I see accountants and lawyers, welders, electricians. I see financial advisors, bankers, healthcare professionals, all kinds of folks. Some of you are retired. God bless you. That means you work a lot more. (laughs) And a lot of you choose to work around here. Thank God for you. Whatever you do, the Bible says, whatever. Whatever you do, do it heartily. I want to show you this morning how you can turn your work into worship. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You see, when you were saved, you were redeemed. Jesus Christ bought you. The Bible tells you you are bought with the price you belong to Him. Who do you work for? You work for Jesus Christ, not just on Sunday. You work for Him tomorrow too. Monday through Friday, Saturday, all day Sunday, you work for Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Brother Rich didn't come up with that. It's right there in the book, Colossians 3.23, or right there. I can see it back there. You can, right there in the book. You serve the Lord Christ. What's that mean in a practical way? If you are an employee, you have contracted with someone else, uh, you work for them. That's true. They give you money for your work, your time. You work, your expertise, your experience. You work for someone else. They sign your paycheck. That is true. But as a believer in Christ, there is another aspect to that. You work for Jesus Christ. And this passage tells us that if you do your work heartily unto the Lord, and let me tell you something, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're on the other side of that equation and you say, well, I'm an employer and I want people to know they work for me. I know that, but let me tell you something. If you have believers in Christ who know that they're working for Jesus Christ, uh, your work ethic is not going to be diminished. It's going to be greatly enhanced. Because these are people who take their job seriously. They want to do it and do it well. Not just for that money they get on Friday, but because they know that Jesus Christ is going to reward them eternally because they did their job well. When you understand that, you can turn your work into worship. You're on the flip side of that. You're an employer. You're on your own business. And many of you here this morning do. Same principle is true. You don't work for your customers. You work for the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you work for Him, you're going to serve your customers well. You're going to do your best for them. You're going to be honest with them. You're going to have a a position of integrity. And and you're going to follow those principles regardless of what might... Because you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You serve Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter... You see, in the end, how how much we make on on whichever side that we are on, employer, employee, either side. It doesn't matter how much we make. We say, well, it doesn't matter how much you make, it's how much you keep. It doesn't even matter how much you keep. 
because there's a great event coming in all of our lives. We all have an appointment. And at that moment, you know how much we're going to leave behind? All of it. Doesn't matter how much you make, how much money you make. Doesn't matter how much you keep. Because death is coming. I hate to be a, a, a spoil sport here this morning, but death is coming. And there's no money to be packed up and taken with us. Remember we started off this morning talking about Solomon when we talked about in the Old Testament we talked about somebody was wealthy. We wanted to talk about riches. The one they talked about was Solomon. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon said a lot about wealth, the accumulation of wealth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, he said, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? He described how that he sees that money. <laughs> it's in my bank account. And then it's gone. Just passes through. I get to see it. I get to handle it a little bit if I'm old-fashioned enough and actually carry that green stuff around in my pocket instead of one of those plastic cards. Old people carry cash. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. If you carry cash, you get to handle it a little bit, but you don't get to keep it very long. It just kind of passes through. You get to see it, maybe, if it's in the account, but then it's gone. Solomon was talking about that. When goods increase, bills go up. This is vanity. It's emptiness. He continues, verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind all his days? He also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. He describes then that person who has lived his life for the accumulation of wealth and he has watched it come and he has watched it go. And after a while, the obsession with all of that and the awareness that he's not going to be able to take it with him and it's all going to pass to someone else, what does it do? It leaves him with sorrow and sickness and anger. And the older he gets, the angrier he gets. Had he stopped there, it would have been just a sad picture, but he gives us a whole different discussion when we understand that we're living our life in submission to God and in obedience to Him and we're serving God and serving Jesus. Here's what I've seen, verse 18. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, notice to every man to whom God has given, here's a man who understands that what he has got has come to him as a blessing from God. And with that then, God gives him the power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is God's gift to him, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. What an incredible passage. And it all comes just from acknowledging that what we have comes just from God. 
Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth but treasures in heaven. He would go on and illustrate that in his teaching in Luke chapter 12. not going to read it, just going to refer to it, the story of the man that God called a fool. Because he had an incredible abundant harvest and he looked at himself and said, you know, I don't have enough storage place. I'm going to have to tear down my barns and build bigger ones to put this crop in. And then I can say to my soul, take your ease. You've got all you need. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall all these things be? And he went on then and applied it this way. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, there's two sides of being rich toward God. There's the riches that come to us by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. This is what God did for us when he redeemed us and he forgave us of our sin and he made us his child and he created this union so that I'm in Christ and Christ lives in me and you're in Christ and Christ lives in you. You then have that promise of an eternal inheritance through Jesus Christ and nothing can take that away from you. But then there's also the opportunity to serve him. And that in itself would be great enough. But Jesus again and again and again and again promised that I will reward you for your faithful service. You can have a great reward at the presence of Almighty God before Jesus Christ who, who gave himself for you. You can have a great reward. The book of Revelation tells us what we're going to do with those rewards. We'll cast them all at his feet. Because he's the only one that deserves them. But brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you want to have something to lay at his feet? Let me answer that question for you. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And that brings us back to the life that we live, how we live it, the service that we render, what we do, what we don't do. For the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Just a cup of water. It's an old hymn writer put it this way. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. Be faithful, weary children. Yeah. That's God. Most of us God has put a whole lot more in a cup of water in our hands. Unto whom much is given. And so this morning we have a great incredible passage to look at the unsearchable riches of Christ. We'll return to it by God's help if the rapture didn't occur between now and then. And I don't die in the middle of vacation Bible school or something. <laughs> something crazy happens. We'll be back here next Sunday and we'll be going about this unsearchable riches of Christ. Again.
But I hope this morning we've all got a good reminder of what is ours because we're in Christ Jesus, because you received him by faith and you are a child of heaven's king. What is ours then by reward, by our faithful service to him? All of it coming back to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's stand together, please.